let's just read a scripture together from Colossians chapter 3. Starting from the first verse, it says, If therefore you have been raised with the Christ, seek the things which are above, where the Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Have your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For ye have died, and your life is hid with the Christ in God. When the Christ is manifested, who is our life, then shall ye also be manifested with him in glory. Paul tells us here, seek the things which are above. And that's exactly what we want to do over these next couple of days. Um, Too often, we'll go to meetings and the brother speaking will say, you need to seek the things that are above. But he doesn't actually take us with him and seek the things that are above together. Well, this weekend, I want to do that. I'd like together that we seek those things that are above. Those things, it says, where the Christ is. I think for many of us, we're um, well attuned to thinking about the wonderful things connected with the Lord Jesus that he did when he was here. You know, every week, every Sunday morning, we have an opportunity to come together to remember him. We remember him as he was. But this exhortation from the Apostle is to focus on where he is. And we often forget to seek to do that. He says, seek those things that are about where the Christ is. So we're going to be focusing on his present glories, glories that he has now. And then um, the third thing is that in verse 3, it says, Our life is hid with the Christ in God. Where is our life? What is our life? Is our life going to school? Going to work? Playing tennis? Playing the piano? What is it? What's our life? Are going to Maccas? Um, what's, what's our life? Our life, our real life, our true life, is here with the Christ in God, where he is. And if that's what our real life is, we need to learn to be more engaged with it, more involved in it, more occupied with it. Now, the, the, the key thing, the fourth thing, but third in sequence in these verses is um, at the end of verse 1, sitting at the right hand of God. That's where he is now. Now, In the the hymn book, there are 17 different hymns that include that expression, at the right hand of God. But if we read through the scriptures, it's more times than that. And so um, I'm going to start just with Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, There are four occasions there where it speaks about him sitting at the right hand of God. In chapter 1, verse 3, I'm just going to refer to them briefly. I won't won't give an explanation of all of these. In chapter 1, verse 3, notice the difference. If you're taking notes, 
make a note of the difference in what it says in each of these places. So chapter 1, verse 3, it says, at the end of the verse, he set himself down on the right hand of the greatness on high. The right hand of the greatness on high. Now have a look in chapter 8, verse 1. the end of the verse, it says, who has sat down on the right hand of the throne of the greatness in the heavens. Then chapter 10, verse 12. Again, the end of the verse. Sat down in perpetuity at the right hand of God. And then the last reference in Hebrews is in chapter 12, verse 2. And again, it's the end of the verse. It says, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you notice the, the sequence and the differences? So the first two references, sat down at the right hand of the greatness on high. The second reference the throne of the greatness. The third reference sat down at the right hand of God. And the fourth reference sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And what's really interesting is that when it mentions the throne, it's talking about him as one who is a leader, as one who is a priest, as one who is... Um, doing something in connection with us. But when it doesn't mention the throne, when it talks about sitting down at the right hand of the greatness, when it talks about sitting on the right hand of God, it's following on from talking about his sacrificial work. So there's two streams running through here. One that relates to his sacrifice and the other that relates to his service. One talks about the throne and the other doesn't talk about the throne. I'm looking around the room and I think I know everyone. I think I do. But just in case I don't, and it's quite possible I don't, I know from personal experience that it is possible not to really know where someone's at in their heart who's sitting in a meeting like this. If you don't actually know the Lord Jesus as your Saviour, if you don't know his sacrificial work and the effect it has had upon you, then this weekend's going to be useless. It's going to be a waste of time. Well, maybe not all of it, because it's a gospel meeting on Saturday. <coughs> but we're focusing on things that are connected with the life of those who know Christ as Saviour. And if you don't know him as Saviour, then what can I say except... Don't go to sleep tonight unless you're sure you know him. Now, I'm only going to say that briefly because I think I know everyone here. And I think, I trust that you all already know the Lord, know him as your saviour. Let's, um, let's move on then. So, four references in Hebrews to the right hand of God. I'm not going to go through them all because we won't have time, but in, in Matthew chapter 22... The Lord quotes from Psalm 110 
And he quotes that verse in Psalm 110 that says, Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as footstool to your feet. He's challenging people who are opposing him. He's challenging them in anticipation of the fact that he was going back to the right hand of God. And a little bit later, they arrest him, they take him captive, and in, um, so that was Matthew twenty-two forty-four. In Matthew 26, 64, he's being interrogated by the, the high priest, and he says these words, um, I haven't got them written down, but he says, in not long, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of God. In anticipation, again, he's reminding them of the fact that they're going to put him to death, but that won't be successful in getting rid of him because he's going to rise again and he'll be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's repeated by Mark and Luke. So both of those two references are repeated by Mark and Luke. That makes now six references. Now Mark adds one. He adds a reference at the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 19. As a historical fact, he says, Jesus was taken up to heaven and sat at the right hand of God. That's reference number seven. Then in the book of Acts, the message about Christ at the right hand of God is presented as a testimony. Peter, in his preaching, twice. He speaks in Acts 2, verse 33, that Jesus was exalted by the right hand of God. In verse 34, he also quotes from Psalm 110. Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as footstool under your feet. Chapter 5, verse 31, he mentions it again. And then the next two references in Acts, making five in total in Acts, are by Stephen. Stephen, who looks up into heaven while men are murdering him, his life is totally changed and totally affected by seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus. When he sees the glory of the Lord in heaven, he becomes just like the Lord. And that's our desire in considering a subject like this. That when we focus on his glory, we become like him. Remember Stephen? He died just like the Lord Jesus died. He died praying for his enemies. He died with a forgiving heart towards his enemies. And twice in his last breaths, he speaks of seeing Jesus and seeing the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Paul, now that was five times in Acts. I haven't been adding them up, but the, the total, someone else can tell me the total when we finish. That was five. There were four in Hebrews. There were seven in the Gospels. And in the writings of Paul, there are three references. One in Colossians that we read. One in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And I'd like to read that because this is a little section of Scripture that gets totally messed up in our heads by the punctuation that has been caused by the guy who put the verse numbers in. Now, whoever that guy was, we can be thankful. Because I can say, turn to Romans 8.34 and you'll all get there. Whereas if I said, turn to page 1,356, only some of you will get there. But the guy who put those verse numbers in, he did us a favour. 
having done us a favour, sometimes he, he got the street address a little bit wrong. He, um, you know, if, if you get some mail for your next door neighbour, um, you don't you don't always feel comfortable about that. And if you read in Romans chapter eight, in order to understand verse thirty-four, you cannot start reading at the beginning where the verse number is. You have to start from these words a little way into the verse. It is Christ who has died, but rather has been also raised up, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. In this section in Romans, the Apostle is making a statement and following up the statement with a rhetorical question. That is a question that doesn't need an answer because the answer is really obvious. And the trouble with the way the, the guy understood it who put the verse numbers in, he thought the Apostle was writing question then, question, then answer. And if you read it as someone writing question, then answer, you cannot possibly understand this section. He writes a statement, and then having made a statement, he asks a rhetorical question. <laughs> And the rhetorical question in this instance is, who could possibly separate us from the love of the one who is at the right hand of God interceding for us? That's his present position in glory and in service for us. So Colossians 1, Romans 8, then Ephesians 1 verse 20, Paul speaks of all that God did in exalting the Lord Jesus to his right hand. One more reference by the Apostle Peter when he speaks about the supreme authority and power the Lord Jesus has at the right hand of God, that's 1 Peter 3.22. Um, has anyone added those up? Michael? Uh, anyone good with numbers? 20, yeah, thanks, Megan. So 20 times, 20 times in the New Testament, the, the subject of Christ at the right hand of God is mentioned. Is, is that an important subject or is it just you know one of those little passing ones at momentary? It, it's a major theme of the New Testament, so it's worth looking at. Am I getting nods? Yeah, I think we're getting nods. Good. Okay. One of the primary glories of the Lord Jesus at God's right hand is that of firstborn. This is one of these, uh, what do we call it? A paradoxical title. You know what a paradox is? Looking at Susan. Susan doesn't know. Okay. It's one of those confusing, <coughs> confusing titles because the Lord Jesus is called the firstborn son, but it is, he's also called the only begotten son. <coughs> Are those two things not contradictory? How can he be only begotten? And also the <coughs> firstborn. Well, the little key to this is that when he is called the only begotten son, it's a reference to his glory as the eternal son, the one who in past eternity was the exclusive object of his father's attention, attention and affection. That's the only begotten. But when it speaks about him as firstborn, it's not speaking about who he is as God from eternity past, it's speaking about what he has become as man in order that he might bring us near to him. If there's any one thing I want 
everyone to take away, because everyone's going to take something different from this weekend. But if there's one thing I want you all to take away, and that is that in his position in glory, the Lord Jesus wants to have us near him. He wants to have us near him, and with him, and like him. He wants to have us close. That is what is involved in him being firstborn. Now, to be firstborn, it means that you've been given the most special place there is to be given. You can have a little question at the end. It's a common question. Um, I think some of you will know what the question is already. But we'll do a little question and answer thing at the end. The Lord, as firstborn, is not alone. The Lord, as only begotten, is completely alone. As firstborn, let, let's look at some verses. We'll, we'll start with um, a simple one. Matthew chapter 1. This is talking historically. Matthew 1, verse 25. She brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. That's simply speaking about his natural birth, his natural family life. And what does that tell us in... Bible studies just recently, um, I mentioned that I'd, I'd heard some years ago a strange teaching, perhaps some of you have heard this idea, that Mary only had one son. Mary's only one, one and only son was Jesus and she had no other sons. What does it say here? She brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. In that Bible study we were reading about the names of his brothers and sisters. And Mary had many children, not just the Lord Jesus, but he was the one who was born first. Historically, this verse is simply talking about his family life. There's another way in which the scripture uses the idea of firstborn, not as the one who was born first, but as the one who has been given the greatest place of all. And we're going to go to Colossians in order to understand this. So Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, it says, who is image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. I suppose you're aware that people like Jehovah's Witnesses will come knocking on the door and say, well, see, it says... Jesus was the first one created. Is that what it says here? It says he's firstborn of all creation, but it goes on. Keep reading. We can't read one verse at a time. Firstborn of all creation. Why? Because by him were created all things. What makes him firstborn of all creation? The fact that he created everything. That's what makes him firstborn. Not that he was created first. It doesn't say that at all. 
It says he is the creator, and that makes him the firstborn of all creation. He's the greatest one who could possibly step into this creation. Why? Because he created it. That's what firstborn means. It means the one who has been given the greatest position. Now, I'll tell you what the question is going to be. It's a well-known question. There are seven times in the book of Genesis where the one who was born first did not have the place of the firstborn one. When you divide into groups, you're going to identify those seven and you're going to identify the spiritual lesson that comes from each one of those seven. And one more thing you're going to do, but I'll tell you about in a second. Because we have to keep reading in Colossians. And in chapter 1, verse 18, this is now not talking about him being born into a family. It's not now talking about him having the greatest place in the whole of creation. It's talking about him now in resurrection at the right hand of God. And that's in verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the body, the assembly, who is the beginning, firstborn from among the dead, that he might have the first place in all things. There's actually three glories mentioned here. He's the head, he's the beginning, and he's the firstborn. As firstborn of all creation, he came into this creation in order that it might be demonstrated that he's the creator. As the head of the body, as the beginning, as the firstborn from among the dead, he's not the firstborn just to show that he's the creator. He's the firstborn as one who is beginning something completely new. still here. See what it says? Who is the beginning? The beginning of what? There's a scripture in the book of Revelation that tells us fairly clearly what's meant by that. It says he's the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the new creation. You know the, the first creation... What did God start with? In the beginning, God... Genesis 1, we are, come on, we know this. In the beginning, God created the heavens. heavens and the earth. And what did he finish with? From creation. Man. So, Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 1, 26-ish, I think. So, starts with heavens and earth, and he finishes with man. But in the new creation, it's completely the reverse order. In the new creation, he starts with a man, a man risen from the dead, who is called the firstborn from among the dead. Does that mean he was the first one ever raised from the dead? Of course not. Remember the Lord, he he raised a little girl, he raised Lazarus, he raised a a young man who was being taken in his coffin. Um, And even before that, in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha, they, they raised... So being the firstborn from among the dead doesn't mean he was the first one ever raised. It means he has the greatest place as raised from among the dead. Why? Because he's the beginning of something completely new. He's the beginning of a new creation. Everyone who's trusted in the Lord Jesus is entitled to say this. I am in Christ. We can say Christ is in me, but we can say I am in Christ. 
I want some nods. Can you say that? I'm in Christ. Yeah? Any, any more nods? Good. A couple of nods. So, if you're in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, read, read this. Second Corinthians five, verse seventeen. So that if anyone be in Christ, there is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Stop there. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. I mentioned the first creation, God started with heavens and earth, he finished with man. The new creation, he starts with man, he's going to finish with a new heavens and a new earth. We read that in the book of Revelation. But if we're in Christ, do we have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth before we can know that all things are new? We don't have to wait. This scripture tells us that because we are in Christ, we're part of that new creation, and for us as believers, all things have become new. Why? Because we're connected with the man who is the beginning of that new creation. He wants to have us near him. He wants to have us with him. He wants to have us like him. And in the eyes of God, he has already made us a completely new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now, I know there are some sloppy translations that say, new things have come. To water down the truth that all things have become new. Well, ah, if you want to rationalise it, let's say our new world, all all things haven't become new, have they? I've still got this body, and this wall doesn't feel particularly new here, and carpet, um, and you know, I've known all of you for quite a while, really. And how can you possibly say all <coughs> things have become new? Only some things have become new. Well, if we start to rationalise things like that, name one of the things that has become new. Is there anything? If we're thinking rationalistically, you know, using our brains and trying to think it through with logic, nothing has become new. But if we're going to accept by faith what God says, all things have become new, new creation is here, and for me, everything has become new. There's a verse in the end of Galatians chapter 6 that tells us that new creation is a rule for the believer. It's a really interesting rule, because it's a rule that doesn't give us any details. And I know I've said this heaps of times before. Um, We are well accustomed to hearing about rules where we're not given details. You go and you buy a new iron, and I say something, but anyway. You buy a new iron, and there's a label on that, on on the box, on the outside. It says, be careful, the iron is hot. That's the rule. It doesn't tell you, don't try and straighten your hair with the iron. It doesn't tell you, put your shirt on the ironing board when you're ironing. It doesn't tell you that stuff. It it, it expects 
that by taking that rule, you're going to be able to apply that rule in all of the circumstances in which you're going to use the iron. Don't stand on a ladder while you're ironing the curtains. You know, that, those kinds of things. Um, when the scripture says to us that new creation is a rule, we have to sit, sit back and think, well, well, how can that be? How can new creation be a rule to me? If I accept by faith that all things have become new because Christ is the beginning of the creation of God and I'm connected with Him, how's that going to affect me? Am I now living in a world where there's uh, England over there, and there's France, and there's Germany, and there's New Zealand, there's all these places on my bucket list to be a tourist, to go and see and take selfies and, and, and post them on Facebook? Is that how I regard the world? Or is the world a completely new place for me? Is it a place where, or perhaps in that place, there are people who need the gospel? Perhaps in that place there are Christian brothers and sisters I can go and meet. Perhaps in, in, in that place there's another way I can serve the Lord. The whole world is a new place to me now. The, um, the old grumpy guy who, who used to always really get up my nose, you know, and make me cranky because he was such an old, cranky, grumpy guy. He's not that anymore. He's my brother in Christ. The person living next door, is he my mate? Or is he a sinner needing a saviour? Um, in a thousand, I'm only giving a couple of examples, but in a thousand ways we can think, if all things are new, how does that affect my life? So this fact of the Lord Jesus being the beginning of the new creation is really, really practical. He's glorious in that, but um, he wants us to realise that we are part of that new creation with him. Now I need to move and we're going to have a look now at the thought of the Lord Jesus as the second man and as the last Adam. And for that, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. You know, one, one thing I should have said as we were thinking about the Lord as the firstborn, and maybe I did say it, he wants to have us near him. Did I say that? He wants us to be near. You know, if, if, if someone said to me, you're the firstborn, you know, you're, um, I'll give one example of those seven that you're going to pull out later on. Joseph, if someone had said to me, you, you've got this um, coat of, of many colours and you've been put into the, the, the greatest place by the Father. The Father, he, he loves you more than all of the others. And, he, and you know what I would have done? I would have gone, ha, ha, me, 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 me. The Lord Jesus has not done that. He's firstborn in order to bring his brethren to God. He's been given that place in order that he might be firstborn, not over, but firstborn among many brethren. He's firstborn because he wants to have us. Did I say that before? Because he wants to have us near him and with him and like him. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Read from verse 42. Yeah. Keep watch closely for these two different titles of the Lord. The second man and the last Adam. So start at verse 42. 
Thus also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruptibility. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual one. Thus also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a quickening spirit. Put a full stop there and breathe for a bit. Now we keep reading. But that which was spiritual was not first, but that which is natural. Then that which is spiritual. The first man out of the earth made of dust. The second man out of heaven. Such as he made of dust, such also those made of dust. And such as the heavenly one, such also the heavenly ones. I'll stop reading there. In order to understand these two expressions, the last Adam and second man, that's the sequence in which they're presented in this verse, we need to to remember hmm, one or two things. There were two grain crops in Israel. The barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Barley harvest came first. The wheat harvest came second. If you read the book of Ruth, you'll see that very clearly. Um, Naomi and Ruth come back. Naomi's restored in the time of the barley harvest. And Ruth goes down and she starts, she starts gleaning and she brings back what she's, what she's gleaned. And she continues doing so all through the barley harvest until the wheat harvest. The barley harvest comes first. And when the children of Israel um, had a responsibility each year to, um, to have a, a series of public holidays, like we're having this weekend, a special public holiday for a special occasion, their special occasion wasn't a football match. Their special occasion was the first crop from the harvest being ready for harvesting. And on that occasion... Before anyone could ever go near their crop and start eating from that crop, the priest had to take a sheaf of that harvest, and it was barley, the first crop that came up, and take it um, to the tabernacle. And he didn't burn it or anything like most sacrifices. He just waved it. He waved it before Jehovah. And after that, the, the people were permitted to go into their fields and start harvesting their crops. That feast, that public holiday, was called the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about Christ as the first fruits, Christ as the one who was raised from the dead. The barley harvest is a picture of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the first harvest in Israel. Then the next harvest was the wheat harvest. And if we want to understand, we can understand the barley harvest. It's a picture, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If we want to understand the wheat harvest, you have to go to John chapter 12 for that, because it says, we know this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides 
alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. As barley, barley is a picture of Christ in resurrection. Wheat is a picture of Christ in his humanity. Now, let's come back to 1 Corinthians 15. And with those things in mind, try and get an impression of what it's saying here. In verse 45, the expression, the last Adam, is referring back to all of those verses before that talk about the resurrection. He says, um, verse 45, thus also. That little word thus, that means remember what I've just said on the basis of what I've just said. This is what I'm saying now. Thus also... The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a quickening spirit. The last Adam is a reference to the Lord Jesus as a man in resurrection. What happened with Adam? When Adam was created, it says God breathed into him and he became a living soul. When the Lord Jesus rose from among the dead, one of the first things he did was not God breathed into him, he breathed into his disciples. He was now a man in a completely new kind of life and he had men who had been following him and they weren't connected with him in any way. And he could not tolerate that. That those men that he wanted to be with him and near him and like him, they were not connected with him. Through the whole of his life they hadn't been connected with him. And the reason why they hadn't been connected with him through the whole of his life is because he was the second man. He was the man out of heaven. He was the grain of wheat. He was one who had no one united to him. You know, they walked with him, they talked with him, but they weren't united to him. They didn't share the life that he shared. And because they didn't share the life that he shared, they couldn't possibly understand the feelings that he had. But as soon as he was risen from the dead... He could not tolerate that that situation continue anymore. So one of the first things he does, he breathed into them. He said, I'm not going to wait until 40 days later when the, the Holy Spirit, 50 days later when the Holy Spirit comes, in order for you to be connected with me. Immediately he breathed into them by the power of the Holy Spirit that they might share his life in resurrection. The Lord Jesus wants us to be Near him, close to him, united to him. And that's what he does as the resurrected man, as the last Adam. Second man, second man, it says, is the one who is out of heaven. The last Adam is the one who is raised from among the dead. The second man is the one who is out of heaven. Now, what an interesting title, second man. When you say last... I competed in a race and I came last. You know that there wasn't anyone else afterwards. If there were only two competing and you say, I came second, um, you might not be quite telling the whole story. But um, if you say, I came last, you know that there's not going to be any other. There is never going to be another Adam. There's never going to be another head of a race of people. There was only the first Adam, 
and the last Adam. And the last Adam is a man in resurrection, and in resurrection, he unites us to himself. But as the second man, if I say I came second in a race, and there were more than two, you expect that there'll be more afterwards. And the whole expectation of God, the whole purpose of God, the whole intention of God in the Lord Jesus becoming a man, is that there would be others. We know there could not be others while the Lord Jesus lived as a man on earth. Not possible. He said that. Except the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But now that he's become the last Adam, the whole purpose for which he became the second man has come to fruition. Now there's much fruit. Many grains. Men and women. Maybe I shouldn't even say men and women anymore. Because in that connection, brought into association with him, we're all like him. We're all sons. Every one of us. A place of privilege. A place of nearness. A place of closeness and love. How much time have we got, Mike? I know we started later. I didn't quite notice when it was. We've got a little bit of time. A couple more minutes? Yeah. No one's asleep yet, so I'll... Um, and it's, I know it's tough for the Kiwis because it's, you know, at least two hours later. But um, while you're still awake, we'll keep going. <clears throat> One more title of the Lord Jesus in resurrection that's not unique to his resurrection and it's a title you're going to struggle to find in your Bibles because it's a title that's buried in the text of Scripture. In order to find it, we're going to read just... Two references to start with, at least so you know where I'm headed. So the two references are in Psalm 102. start reading anywhere other than the verse itself. Verse 27 But thou art the same and thy years shall have no end. I think I checked this out beforehand it's translated like that in the um, New King James Version anyone got New King James? Yes and it's also translated like that in the ESV Okay, Um, thou art the same. There's another reference to this in the the book of Hebrews. I won't go there just for a moment. In the translations we hold in our hands, this in the New King James and in the ESV is the only time in the Old Testament where this name of God is translated in this way. The same. There's one other instance in the JND translation, or two references in one instance in Nehemiah. It's a name of God which is very much obscured by the translation because it's a name which is formed in an unusual way. It's formed by putting 
the first person pronoun with the second, the third person pronoun. When God is speaking about himself, in using this expression, literally it would come across as I, he. I, he. When someone is speaking to God, and referring to God by this name, it would be to put the second person pronoun and the third person pronoun together. Literally it would be you, he. Now, you can't translate like that, obviously. Let's take one example. Deuteronomy 32. And we'll see what the translators have done in order to cope with this. Because it's something that kind of blows your mind. A name for God comprised of two pronouns sandwiched together. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39. It says, See now that I, I am he. It's the same in all the translations. I, I am he. What the translators have had to do in order to try and make this flow for us, to, to try and help us to understand, they slip in the little word am. I think that the New King James is very honest there. The am is in italics. Is that right? Yeah. When, when New King James puts something in italics, it means it's not in the original text. We as translators have decided to slip it in there to kind of help you understand. That's an honest translation that does that. Um, puts in the am in there. But the actual name for God, by which God names himself, is I, he. And... It's that same name that appears in seven instances where God speaks of himself. The first one here is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. And he speaks of himself in this way. He says, there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound, I heal. And there is none that delivers out of my hand. He speaks about himself as an all-powerful God as an exclusive God, as the only God. No such thing as many gods. One God. One God who is all-powerful. There are five more times when God speaks about himself using this name, I, he, um, in Isaiah. And it's in the section of, of Isaiah that's talking about the future restoration of Israel. That God has he put Israel to one side at the moment, and he's going to bring them back. If you'd like, I'll give you the references later on. And then there's one more in another section of Isaiah that is talking about the time when Israel in the future will be just about to be restored. So five times in the middle of, in the middle of that section of Isaiah, once at the end and once in Deuteronomy 32. Seven times God refers to himself by this name. But then there are 12 times when men refer to God by this name. They put the two pronouns together and say, you, he. I was careless in what I said there. 12 times when it is said to God 
knew he. Two of those times, it is God speaking to God. Is everyone with me at the moment? We haven't got time to go through all of the references. David, twice, when worshipping God because of his promises, he uses this name. Jehoshaphat, when he's facing an army, I think, of about a million men. Impossible odds. In worship to God, he, he uses this name of God. Hezekiah, when he's just about to die, facing an impossible outcome, he turns to God using this name. Nehemiah, when he looks back over everything that God has ever done with Israel, he uses this name for God. The sons of Korah, Psalm 44, when they're feeling like everything is crushing down upon them, nothing is ever going to work. Why are things so bad? They cry out to God using this name. Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is told to prophesy a word of judgment against his people, a word of condemnation against his people, he steps back and he looks up to God and he uses this name and he pleads on behalf of those people that he was told to prophesy against. They're the sorts of occasions when that name of God comes out, when there's no other option and when the only God, the all-powerful God, is the only one that will solve anything. And it's in a connection like that that God speaks to God. And this was Psalm 100 and... I'll just say it was 120. <clears throat> oh, sorry, 102. I want to read, read this and note it very carefully. Notice the inspired introduction to the psalm. A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and he pours out his complaint before Jehovah. Who's that one? The Lord Jesus. Now, I'll start reading in verse 23. These are the words, these are the feelings of the Lord Jesus. And we don't have to guess very far to know where it was that he expressed these feelings. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. A cry of the Lord Jesus as a man around about 33 years of age, crying out to God, take me not away in the midst of my days. And he gets an answer. And this is the answer. The answer comes halfway through the verse. Thy years are from generation to generation. Of old hast thou founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou continuest. And all of them shall grow old as a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. This is God in heaven speaking to God on earth. God on earth in the person of the man Christ Jesus, hanging there on the cross in desperation, saying, please, cut me not off. Take me not away in the midst of my days. And what an answer from God to him. 
You are the one who created everything. You are the one who produced everything. You are the one who is going to continue when everything else is gone. That was the word of God. We, we get it in Psalm 22. He was heard on the horns of the unicorn, it says. Right at the very point of extreme anguish. The point when everything came to a head. That, that wonderful word from God came to him. By way of encouragement. By way of promise. By way of just lifting him up. It's at that moment he was able to dismiss his spirit. Say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Let's read it again in Hebrews chapter 2. Because um, I've seen some puzzled expressions on faces. Is this really? Is this really what the scripture is saying here? Is this really God speaking to God? Hebrews 2. Hebrews 1, I'm sorry. <clears throat> All through Hebrews 1, there are things that are being said about the Lord Jesus, the Son, in all of his greatness. And here is one of the things that is said in verse 10. We just read it in Psalm 102. And thou in the beginning, Lord, hast founded the earth, and works of thy hands are the heavens. They shall perish, but thou continuest still. They all shall grow old as a garment, and as a covering shall they roll them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. This is one of the glories, one of the expressions that the Apostle is just racking up, one after the other after the other, to prove the greatness of the Lord Jesus. And this greatness is, he's the creator. He's the one who produced everything. He's the one who will exist when nothing else is here anymore. He is the same. Now that's God speaking to God. We say in, in our language as we understand scripture, God the Father speaking to God the Son. At the moment of his most intense weakness, as a man hanging on a cross, as a man feeling desperately those awful feelings of sorrow and suffering, knowing what it was, about to be, about to be put into the place of death, and a word from God like this to him. You are the eternal, all-powerful, all-majestic one. And you're going to continue forever and ever. What a wonderful word. Now the Apostle Paul, he takes that up at the end of this letter, Hebrews. Chapter 13. And he says very, very clearly that this is... Name Jesus Christ. 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and the ages to come. It's not just Paul saying, Yeah, um, Jesus doesn't change. You know, we read it like that sometimes. That little word, the same, that's the word by which that obscure name of God was translated in Psalm 102. You, he. You, he is translated there as the same. It's a name of God. And Paul gives the Lord Jesus here this name of God. He's not just saying Jesus doesn't change. He's saying he's the eternal, all-powerful, one who produced everything and will be there when everything else is gone. And notice what he says about him as he leads up to this. He starts in verse 6, for example. Oh, no, verse 5. Let your conversation 
your conduct be without love of money, satisfied with your present circumstances, for he has said, I will not leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. Here is one, all-powerful, created everything. He'll be there when all created things are gone. He's the one who's making this promise. Verse 6. So that, taking courage, we may say, The Lord is my helper, and I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember Hezekiah? He's facing death. Jehoshaphat? He's facing an army of a million. Any of these men of God in the Old Testament in times of desperation, who did they turn to? The same. And here's Paul. He says, What can men do to me? Then verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken to you the word of God. Which leaders? Men like Nehemiah, men like Jehoshaphat, men like um, David. Those men who cried out to the God whose name is the same. I, he, you, he. Remember those leaders. And considering the issue of their conversation, imitate their faith. What's the issue of their conversation? What's the focal point of their whole life experience? He then tells us, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. It's not a new title of the Lord Jesus in his present position of glory. It's a title that carries right back into Old Testament times. But in order to show us that the God who has been revealed to us throughout history, throughout Scripture, that God is known to us in the glorified person of the Lord Jesus, the one at God's right hand.